0: Hey there, podcast and online listeners, there are some words that we have unbeeped in this internet version of the radio show. If you prefer a beeped version, maybe you're listening with kids, you can find that on our website. From wBZ Chicago, it's This American Life. So Eleanor was just a kid, eight or nine, standing at a corner, waiting to cross the street, minding her own business.
1: And this guy like hung out of the window of his car and yelled out, call me when you're legal. And it's just so weird. I mean, partially because... <laughs> I wasn't used to, like, being a thing that you would want to have call you. Um,
0: You mean specifically because you were a child?
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But also because, like, what do you want there? What am I going to do in that scenario? Like, am I going to chase him? Am I going to, like, actually give him my number so that he can call me in 11 years' time when I am legal? Like, what's going to happen? What does he want there?
0: So, guy drove off. Eleanor grew up. And as an adult, she saw how often women are catcalled. And she decided to do an experiment where she'd stop and talk to the guys. Treat it like the beginning of a conversation. Like, okay, you wanted to talk? Let's talk. I had some questions. She took a recorder and a microphone. To increase the odds of getting catcalled, she ditched her normal clothes and her glasses for heels and lipstick. She lives in Australia, in Sydney, and she headed to an area called King's Cross.
1: And it's like a nightlife spot anywhere else in the world. You don't need to have seen King's Cross to know what it's like. You have one wherever you live. It's billboards and like fluorescent lights and guys just kind of like shouting at the moon and girls in tiaras and sashes on, that say, 18 today with an exclamation mark. Um, and I walked around and whenever someone yelled out something or catcalled, I would turn around. I would ask if I could start recording and I'd say, what did you just say? And what were you hoping to get from it? Um, and most of them were like pretty, pretty happy to talk. A lot of them were like either drunk or just stoked that a girl was chatting to them. But they, they were pretty forthcoming.
0: Okay, let's hear some of the voices.
2: So a guy just looks for a reaction, a smile, uh, you're a dickhead, hi.
0: Just in case you're having trouble with the Australian accents, he's saying, a guy just looks for a reaction, a smile, you're a dickhead, hi.
1: A smile and you're a dickhead are both oh, equally that, good? Oh,
3: yeah, both equally as good.
1: So it's just attention?
2: No, no, it gives you a platform for you to start.
1: How many successful relationships do you think have started from someone saying you're a dickhead?
2: Zero. <laughs> None.
0: Describe this next guy.
1: So this is Sebastian, and he's a bouncer with a strip club. He's kind of huge and stocky. He's wearing a baseball cap. And he shouted something at me about looking French. And he made this gesture as I walked past as if he was, like, grabbing air breasts. Did you just make a gesture like breasts?
4: I like saying hello to women. I like being friendly to women.
1: Okay, so here's my... They love it. So you think that they're like... They have to. Why? It's a nice thing when a man says hello. One thing that started to emerge in every single one of these conversations was they think that women enjoy it. So whatever the first reason they gave for catcalling, almost immediately the follow-up would be... And I want women to have a good time. I'm trying to make you feel good. I'm trying to give you a compliment or make you feel confident. Women enjoy this and that's part of why I do it. And that was astounding to me.
0: So tell me about these guys.
1: This is Zach and Mike. Zach and Mike shouted at me as I was walking across an alleyway. Do you want her to have fun, or are you just doing it for you? Well, oh, you
2: know, I want I want her to get enjoyment out of what I yell at her. I don't want her to be. not in no way I want her to be offended or feel in any way um, insecure about anything I say. It's always like I'm never going to say anything rude or abusive. It's always for the for the good of the night.
1: Okay, so so it, it matters to you that she has fun.
2: Yes, 100. percent
1: Okay, and do you like do you count yourself as as a good guy?
2: Fucking oath.
1: the best fucking oath is Australian speak for like hell yeah. These guys didn't seem like sexist nutjobs. They didn't seem unreasonable. They weren't hard to talk to. And it occurred to me, they've just like made a mistake. They've just got some kind of central fact about women wrong. And they think that we really enjoy this. And surely I can stand in front of these reasonable, caring dudes and just say women don't like it. And that might be a way of talking them out of doing it ever.
0: Eleanor, by the way, is in her 20s. She spent 14 years in school as an unapologetic debate nerd on debate teams flying to Paris and Doha and Seoul and Berlin to compete. As part of the national Australian debate team, she wore a blue blazer with the Australian crest so she is somebody who believes in her ability to persuade. And when she walked up to guys on the street with her recorder, she really did try to change the way they saw what they were doing. She really did try to convince them to change course and never catcall again. And that's when things got really interesting. Today's program is all about people who believe in the power of a course correction, that they can get others to change course, or they can get themselves to change course, and then things will be fixed, the world will be a better place, they will be better people. We have three stories, one about a U.S. Marine, one about a robot, and we have Eleanor in King's Cross, who is Act One, which is where we are now. This is actually a rerun of our show, but in these Harvey Weinstein, Louis C.K. Roy Moore days... We thought we would go back to this story where a woman tries to talk, sincerely talk, to men about male behavior she just does not understand. And I think the best way to illustrate what her conversations were like, because they are really interesting, is to play you excerpts of just one of them at length. And the one we're going to do is the conversation she had with Zach. Zach is the guy who was out with his friend Mike and said to her,
2: Like, I'm never going to say anything rude or abusive. It's always for for the good of the night.
0: Eleanor said Zach was a good listener. He seemed like a nice guy. And so this is how one of those conversations goes when it goes the best. Here's
1: Eleanor. I talked to Zach and Mike in a dingy alley, which sounds scarier than it was because it's hard to be scared of Zach and Mike. Zach's this big, friendly-looking, overgrown teddy bear of a man with huge brown eyes, and Mike's tiny and wiry. They look kind of like yogi and boo-boo turned human. As I was walking past, Zach yelled out, hey, luscious lips.
2: I was complimenting you on your red lips, how they look nice, and it would be amazing to kiss a complete stranger that worked for a radio station.
1: When Zach does this kind of stuff, it's like he's putting on a show. He's flirty, he's show-offy. His whole mission in life is to bring the party.
2: If you've ever watched a documentary where you've got, like, a bird, like an amazing bird, like the birds of paradise, they do the most extravagant dances, just amazing, just flaunt themselves, I believe... Well, no, I know for a fact that... Saying crazy shit to girls, like the same sort of shit that I said, that brought you to me right now, is the exact sort of same. It's kind of like um, being colorful with your words.
1: To be clear, I liked Zach, even when he told me this.
2: I've done ruder things, like I've I've gone, I've run along to groups of girls on the in, on the street and like complete randoms and smacked one of their asses, like one out of about ten, and. All the rest are like, like fixated on, oh my God, why was her ass slapped? And it's, it's enjoyable.
1: But it's only enjoyable, he says, if the woman's part of a group. He knows there's a line you don't cross. He's just drawn it in a weird place.
2: Yes, if you single out a girl and slap their ass, it can be a little bit creepy, but I wouldn't do that. I only slap one ass of one group. I'm a one ass, one group guy. Okay.
1: Would you have slapped my ass if I'd been closer to you?
2: If you were in a group, yes. If you're on your own, no, I wouldn't.
1: Why not if I was on my own? Uh,
2: it kind of takes away the fun of it. The fun of it is your ass. is not saying your ass is not hot, but your ass is the hottest of the group. Therefore, I have slapped it.
1: Did anybody uh, like hit you or yell at you or tell you not to do that? No. No, no like, not, at all.
2: not at all. I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm complimenting a girl's ass in public.
1: You think that smacking a girl's ass in public isn't doing anything wrong? No. You can hear it, right? He sounds sincere. He wants to believe, or he really does believe, that this stuff is harmless—just a street show or a fun game for everyone to share. Would it matter to you if what you did actually made girls feel really terrible? If I could convince you that at least some of us were made to feel small and frightened by guys who oh, okay. smack our asses on the street or give us compliments without asking, would that does that matter to you?
2: Yeah, definitely. Fucking oaf. I don't. I don't want fucking. I don't want anyone to feel uncomfortable or anything about my presence.
1: Okay, so here's what, here's a thought that I think maybe hasn't occurred to you. There's quite a lot of violence against women, right? Like we understand that. One of the things that happens when you feel afraid as a chick and you're just walking around and a guy slaps your ass is you don't know if he intends it as a compliment or if he's actually really violent. And so something that we do, something that we've learned to do, is to not reject men. One of the strategies we adopt is laugh, smile, be collegiate, be appeasing, be non-confrontational, right? So I want to suggest to you that it's possible that a lot of the smiles and the laughs that you see on the faces of the women who you slap or compliment are ways for them to get out of the situation rather than ways of thanking you. Well, I
2: actually kind of feel a little bit bad now. Yeah, no, I do, because I understand that. I understand that. That an ass slap cannot just be taken as a compliment.
1: Zach seemed to get that. But then Mike explained that what I'd said didn't implicate them.
2: Honestly,
0: like, just because you feel that, and just because it's in the headlines, it does not mean that all chicks or girls have that same feeling, like... Every girl has a different level of sensitivity and I'm feeling from you that your level of sensitivity is way higher and there's a reason for why that is and that's because of your upbringing, of something in your past has brought you to feel this way.
1: In the end, they just weren't buying it. They kept coming back at me with variations on the same theme. Not all girls feel like you do and we don't mean any harm. I just couldn't talk them out of it. Are you still going to yell at women on the street after talking to me?
2: I'm... Yes, I'm going to, yes, because...
1: Even though it makes us feel bad.
2: But you can't speak for every girl.
1: No, I can't, but I think it makes a a reasonable proportion of us feel bad, and I think you taking the risk of frightening someone who something bad has happened to is an unkind thing to do.
2: Well, I'm sorry for being unkind, but I'm just another paradise bird flaunting my shit.
1: But you don't think that you can try and be better?
2: A better paradise bird?
1: A better person. It's true that I can't speak for other women, but I can speak to them. So just for the record, I went to check if I am the only one who feels this way. I talked to girls who were out, like out-out. Girls in sashes and tiaras and girls smoking outside clubs. And I asked them what they thought about catcalling. I hate it so much. It makes me feel so uncomfortable. Pissed off and scared. Shitty, but also super scared. Just the idea that someone is so much bigger than me and could so easily do something to me... I feel cheap. I feel like I need to change my clothing. Like I should have worn a dress today. I've never met like a single person who enjoys it. Not even really drunk women like it, I don't think. I've never, ever, ever met a girl that enjoyed it, ever. There was one woman who kind of enjoyed it. She was young and peppered with freckles and just chilled out about everything. He complimented my butt and I
3: don't like my butt, so I was like, cool.
1: By now, I was going kind of mad that I hadn't talked Zach out of catcalling. I hate losing arguments, but more than that, I hate losing arguments for reasons I don't quite understand, and I still didn't understand Zach at all. Did he seriously just need evidence that more women felt like I did? I decided to try persuading him a second time, only this time I'd be armed with numbers. We met up again at 5 o'clock on a Wednesday, on the exact same spot where he'd yelled at me. On the night we'd met, there'd been vomit on the sidewalk, but by the middle of the week, it was just milk crates and cigarette butts. It took us a minute to recognise each other, but when we did, we sat side by side in the gutter and talked for an hour, conspicuously not touching elbows. All right, let's talk about this slapping woman on the ass thing. All right.
2: <laughs> let's talk about it. You're sold on a day. It's such a It's such a killer. It so works. You just... You've just asked this but question does a work. point that is
1: just... But, yeah. you, but you told me it doesn't work. You told me that I'm the first woman who's ever spoken to you after doing any of this stuff.
2: Yeah, that's true. That's true. I was just being a smartass. All right, I'll just tell you, like, other times it's happened. In Newtown once, it was Australia Day two years ago. I was with the same mate. And there was this group of, like, English girls. I could hear the accent and shit. And I was like, fucking fuck this I'm going to fucking slap one of their asses. There's like 10 of them. And I've walked up in the middle of them, slapped one of the asses in the middle, kind of like pushed my way through and just like started to impersonate them all. And they loved it. We ended up going to a pub and having drinks with them. But it didn't lead to anything more than that. But they like thought that was cool. They were like, fucking, that's that's arrest worthy. You could get arrested for what you just did, but you did it. So fucking kudos to you. Come have a drink.
1: The story that you just told me sounds like There was a group of women who were out by themselves, enjoying themselves. You ran into the middle of the group. You hit one of them without asking or speaking to her. (laughs) That's not funny to me, man. What I'm trying to explain to you is that it's not just me who feels frightened of this stuff. Fair enough. And it's not just me who doesn't find it fun. I have some stats, too. Hang on. Show me some stats. So, a survey found that 67%, so 67% of women think that an interaction in the street like a cat call or a slap is going to escalate.
2: Wait, it's going to escalate to Two, To, to oh, a physical attack. Yeah. Oh, really?
1: Fuck, that's fucked. Two-thirds of women think that, that it's going to get worse.
2: Yeah, that's really bad.
1: 85% feel angry, 78% feel annoyed, 80% feel nervous, and 72% feel disgusted. It's not just me, man. Most of us hate it.
2: Well, those, yeah, stats are stats, aren't they? Fire out. I've never actually... Yeah, I've never heard any stats from it. I've kind of just gone off face value from the situation. So yeah, if you're asking me if I feel bad about what I've done, yeah, I feel bad if I've made anyone feel anything. Then, then like kind of complimented. Yeah, definitely.
1: Those odds suggest to me that you probably have made people feel angry and frightened.
2: I don't think I have. I honestly don't think I have because I've seen the reaction. I'm not grabbing a chick's ass whatsoever. It's like a slap. It's like a tap. You know what I mean? A grab, that would be kind of... I think that's a bit fucking weird. That's... A dude going and grabbing a girl's ass, that's fucking wrong.
1: What makes it wrong to grab a girl's ass?
2: Because you're like, you're fucking... You're feeling their flesh and their body and it's like... You could make them feel really uncomfortable like any...
1: Okay, but the things that make it wrong to grab someone... I'm telling you, that's the same for slapping them.
2: But you can't speak for every girl, you know? You don't know... Yes,
1: we're back on this point. He was not budging on this. He came back to it over and over. He seemed to have this whole imagined world of women who were into this, and he wasn't ready to let it go. What is it that you're thinking that makes you so reluctant to give it up?
2: Because... I put, I try and put myself in their position and I try and imagine what it would be like to just be walking and have some compliment thrown at me by whoever. I, I would get some type of compliment out of it. that they've had enough balls or had enough beers or fucking whatever to be able to yell something out, I would, I would be like, yeah, fucking whatever. Yeah, that's, that's the way I try and like look at things. How would I feel?
1: So how would you feel if someone did what you do and slapped you on the ass without warning and without asking?
2: Um I'd feel a little bit special. If I was with a group of mates, I'd be like, ha, that's right, I've got a better ass than all you cunts.
1: He just thinks it's nice to be noticed. Not intimidating, not scary, just nice. Can I tell you why I found this stuff really depressing?
2: Depressing? Yeah. Why?
1: Because I feel like I've been walking around for days now believing that people want to be nice and believing that it comes from a good place and believing that guys are just trying to have fun and compliment people but it's real real hard for me to keep believing that when I tell people how angry it makes us I tell people how sad it makes us I tell people about sexual violence statistics and the reaction isn't that matters to me, and I'm going to stop. The reaction is that doesn't matter to me, and it makes me—it makes me feel like I'm walking around, like begging people to take people like me seriously, and they're choosing their fun over how I feel. It makes me feel so small.
2: I mm. know oh, that's fucked. That's fucked. Well, that just—that's kind of just the 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 selfishness of the world, like. People know how fucked up, like how bad of things have happened to people, but it's still not going to hinder the way that they are or anything like that. That's just like human selfishness.
1: But I don't want to talk about humans and selfishness. I want to talk about you. Okay. (laughs) Are you going to stop? Because I'm not playing.
2: Yes. I'm not going to slap any more asses. Compliments, when I feel they're appropriate and they're not too suggestive in any way they're very light hearted I think I'm still going to do
1: can you shake my hand and promise me you won't slap any more asses
2: yes I can shake your hand Okay. I can shake your hand I'm not going to slap any more asses
1: after he left I sat on the curb surrounded by fossilised bits of chewing gum and watched the traffic go by this was the most success I had with any of the guys I talked to it took 120 minutes of conversation with one man to get him to commit to not literally assaulting women.
0: Eleanor Gordon-Smith. She's taught ethics at the University of Sydney and now studies ethics at Princeton. Who, the real decoy? So now we turn to the story of a man who had always had one way of doing things and talking to people. And then he did not need a stranger on the street to walk up to him with a microphone. He noticed this on his own, that the way he was dealing with people, it stopped working the way it always had. And he made some adjustments. Stephanie Food tells what happened.
3: Michael Petrie was always the new kid growing up. He went to 10 schools in five states. But he generally did okay, because he's always been good at telling stories. Even now, he's got a solid arsenal.
4: Do you want to hear Fred the Scorpion? That's another one of the greatest hits. Do you want to hear something else? Want to hear another funny one?
3: I actually, I'm running out of time a little bit. Mike is like this wherever he is. At home, at work. In 2006 and 2007, Mike served two tours in Iraq. And he had a rep there as the storyteller, the funny guy. Jocelyn Hemler was in the Marine Corps with him. And I asked her about turnover briefs. Mike ran all the operations for his battalion overnight. And in the morning, had to give a briefing of the events of the past twelve hours. Turnover briefs are one of the most uh, monotonous things we probably do. So very matter of fact, very military. But Mike, it somehow turned into like a quasi-like soap opera of events he'd be like sitting in this rolling chair he'd have one of those like extended pointers and he'd be like let's go to the map and he'd like roll (laughs) all the way across the watch floor like he just gave such rich detail to the story (laughs) a lot of times he's looking for validation when he tells his stories which are funny like he'll be like that was funny right Mike came back stateside after his first deployment, and he was visiting his parents on New Year's Eve as some kids were shooting fireworks.
4: I said, yeah, those fireworks look like airburst mortars. And my brother said, oh, did you see any airburst mortars? I mean, a question as innocuous as that.
3: So Mike did what he'd always done. He started telling the first story that popped into his head on the subject.
4: And I started talking about, there's this one day I was running on this large base where I was stationed, and uh, a a volley of airburst mortars came in, and... uh, but where they went off, right underneath them, was a naval officer. And she took a piece of shrapnel right through her neck, like right in front of me and these three other Marines. And she is she is dying. She is bleeding to death, and she is scared. And uh, it's me and these three Marines getting her into the back of a Humvee, and she's telling us what to tell her kids. And uh, that, and telling that to my family. Um, what
3: did their faces look like as you were saying it?
4: Just sort of shocked and horrified. And and you don't ever want your family to look at you with shock and horror. Yeah, That's not fun.
3: Mike told his family, by the way, she wound up being okay. The officer survived. But that didn't lighten the mood. And he couldn't figure out how to save the moment. That was new. And weird. This happened a few more times, when he was home between deployments. His best friend Brock asked him about IEDs. And he answered, honestly. They never talked about IEDs again after that. Other friends on other nights at other bars asked him about Iraqis or politics.
4: And so the first time your friends from back home ask you, you answer the question very, very honestly. Uh, And you realize about halfway through your answer that you're making everyone very uncomfortable. And it's almost like the air between you starts to thicken. It's almost a physical feeling of, of people withdrawing. From you, what are they? What are they supposed to do? What are they supposed to say to you? They have nothing to say to you. And also, I'm like, what are they? What are they thinking about me right now?
3: What were you afraid that they were thinking about you?
4: That I was damaged. That I had nothing else to talk about. That I was a violent person. That that I, that I wasn't a normal person. And if you say I don't want to talk about it. Then you're the truculent vet who, who's going to be sitting brooding in the corner, and that carries its own stigma.
3: We think that it's like, oh, it's because you're so damaged.
4: Right. You have a shattered psyche. <laughs> you must.
3: But you're like, um, no, it's because I'm pr- trying to protect your psyche.
4: I want to protect the conversation. Well, I think what people hear sometimes is, I don't want to talk about it because it bothers me so much. And sometimes it's, I don't want to talk about it because it's going to bother you. and You don't even know it.
3: He learned to shut up about that stuff. Not that people stopped asking. Like he was out with friends, and someone asked him about mortars again. And even though, of course, the first story that popped into his head was about the officer who got shrapnel on her neck, it was like he went on to the next slide, tried something different, and he blurted out,
4: Well, you know, we have to get a good poo on the mortar. (laughs) They, like, oh, what, a poo on the mortar? It's like, yeah, the point of origin.
3: Basically, they can trace where an enemy mortar is launched from, its point of origin, P-O-O.
4: <laughs> so everyone just refers very casually to a mortar's poo. Uh, and then there, in the command center is a big wall map where there's an officer in charge of marking every poo uh, in, no kidding, a little brown marker. <laughs> <laughs> and there was this place to the northeast of Fallujah, this bend in the river topographically, it looked like a scrotum. So everyone called it the ball sack. <laughs> And that's the place where most of the mortars were launched. And so you'd see your old friends on the base. And you say, hey, what are you up to these days? And they go, well, you know, I'm just poo hunting in the ball sack. <laughs> you know, yeah, be careful. Ball sack's no joke.
3: He was back. The funny guy. The guy people actually wanted to be around. And it was easy. Mike started getting better at using questions to pivot to funny military stories. Like when people asked about helicopters... You talked about how a friend's epic farts stank up the whole bird. Did it feel like you were connecting with people?
4: Yes, it is euphoric. It was great <laughs> for years. It felt great. I mean, there was an element of relief and and of having solved the problem. Yeah. And that's what an officer does. You're handed a, a problem. In the military, it's called a mission. You design the solution to it, and you execute it.
3: It was around this time that Mike met Erin. She was a friend of his little sister's, and they'd started emailing each other during his first deployment. And he developed a huge crush, even though he'd never met her in person. So now that he was home, he finally went out with her and a bunch of her friends. So they're out, and someone brought up the Iraqis, said, are they even doing anything for themselves over there? This was such a cartoonish idea of the war, it annoyed Mike, and without thinking, he found himself telling a story to prove how seriously the Iraqi army took their jobs. A story where, in order to find a terrorist, the Iraqi army rounded up all the men in a village, bound them, and put them on their knees with their heads against a wall. That's how seriously they took this. He stopped talking and realized, crickets. He looked up at Erin. She was horrified. And he thought, oh, God, oh, God, I've got to tell a funny story now. So he launched into one of his classics, Fred the Scorpion, which goes like this.
4: "Uh, So my first deployment, I was a platoon commander. Um, and so my Marines found a scorpion. And that's a big deal. You can uh, feed it vermin. You can uh, fight it against other scorpions uh, owned by other platoons. So this scorpion, unbeknownst to me, kind of became the platoon mascot. And they kept it in a... Like a cardboard box in their barracks, right underneath someone's bed.
3: Mike finds out about the scorpion. Turns out it's one of the most deadly species in the world. He's their boss, so he orders them to kill it. But everybody's really attached to Fred, so they come up with this crazy plan to euthanize him.
4: They drop him into a bucket of diesel fuel for, I think, three days. He's all shriveled up, and everyone's pretty convinced he's dead. They pick him up, he springs back to life, and he runs off into the desert. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, Fred the Scorpion. I miss him.
3: Okay, so Fred the Scorpion.
4: Yeah, g- goes over great.
3: Is it a decoy for another story that is real?
4: Um, Yeah. And uh, the story... So there was a curfew at night in these surrounding communities like Habani and Fallujah and Ramadi. So people couldn't drive at night.
3: Power was intermittent and it was hot. Some Iraqi families would sleep on the roof at night to keep cool. It wasn't unheard of for kids to get stung by scorpions up there.
4: And they would be faced with this decision of, do we get in our car and try to take our child to get medical help um, and risk getting shot? And that's something I heard all the time from Iraqis. What do we do if our child is dying of a scorpion bite? Can we violate curfew then?
3: The curfew was imposed by the Americans, and he couldn't promise that an Iraqi family traveling to the hospital to save their kid would not get shot by Americans who are trying to protect themselves from suicide bombers. So when Iraqis asked him this question?
4: The answer you want to give them is, yes, please, bring us your kid, let us help. I mean, the, an- the actual answer is, you're taking your life in your hands.
3: Hmm.
4: And so you're, that's the story you don't want to tell. Yeah, it's not, scorpions are not just this innocuous. A scorpion bite for an Iraqi family causes an impossible decision and puts Marines in impossible situations. And for years, we were faced with that.
3: But Fred the Scorpion, the decoy story, worked. Everyone at the table laughed. Erin relaxed. Two months later, she quit her job and moved across the country to be with him. Nearly 10% of Americans served in the Second World War. Back then, you very likely had a coworker, a son, a neighbor who was serving in the war effort. In Vietnam, far fewer served, 2% of the population. Today, only about half a percent of our population has served in Iraq and Afghanistan, experiencing something that's mostly invisible to the rest of us. So when people ask these seemingly simple questions about the war at a Christmas party, vets today have to figure out how to communicate this very large, nuanced, morally complicated thing to people who are probably coming to the conversation knowing nothing at all. Silence is an option a lot of vets go with. There's also dodging the question entirely or the whole gory shock and awe method. The funny stories workaround was Mike's solution. And for years, it worked. Sort of. There was a downside. Mike came home from his final deployment in 2007 and then he and Aaron moved to Louisiana to start their lives together. Both of them went back to school. They held dinner parties, went to shows. Everything seemed fantastic. But Aaron was disturbed by the fact that Mike could be distant every once in a while. When he got really drunk, he'd lose his temper and start yelling. He often couldn't sleep and had trouble making friends. At those dinner parties, he he could still make people laugh by telling those funny stories about the war, but Aaron says they were always the same few stories, and he'd just tell them over and over and over again. Here's Aaron. I could recognize that it was a mask; that it wasn't the real thing. I mean, he was Vaudeville, and you know, and I was guilty of being like Mike. Tell the, tell the time with the poo, and the you know, <laughs> like. But, like, I would hear people ask him questions, and. You know, I would catch him telling decoy stories. I think he just wanted a break, and he wanted to live, and he wanted to be happy. Which was okay. Until it wasn't. A couple years later, on a chilly evening, one of Mike's best friends from college visited the two of them in Louisiana. The friend was spending the night, and they were all on his porch at 2 a.m. drinking. His friend was talking.
4: And uh, I think he kind of said almost apropos out of nowhere, you know, uh, you know 5,000 people dying in a war is not really that much, historically speaking. And I lost control of myself. Before I knew it, I was, I was in his face screaming with a finger pointed right at his face. And I had to be physically pulled away by two other people who were there. I think what I was screaming at him was, yeah, 5,000 Americans, but you don't care at all about the 100,000 Iraqis, do you? Is that what you're telling me?
3: Actually, the number is really in dispute. You see estimates between 115,000 and 500,000 deaths. Do you think that your friend might have been more careful with his choice of words if you had not projected a level of chill about your experiences, you know?
4: (laughs) That's absolutely correct. Uh, yeah, Yeah, my friend would have been more careful with his words had I not had such a perfectly cultivated veneer of chill that I had spent years creating.
3: This kind of thing had happened a couple times before. But this incident was the worst. And Erin was worried. She was the only person who knew how much he was suppressing. Because during Mike's second deployment, he'd handwritten her a letter every day, telling her the truth and his feelings about it, his fear, his grief. But once he came home, Mike never mentioned any of these things again. Not even Aaron. Whenever she tried to ask a question about them, he just said, my friends died there, so I don't want to talk about it. So the morning after Mike's outburst with his friend, Aaron cornered Mike and told him, look, this is happening because you haven't told a real story about the war in years.
4: The night before, which I had gone completely out of control She's like, "Well, at least you were being real with him last night. At least you at least you respect him that much."
3: And how did you respond?
4: Uh, <laughs> I don't think I did. <laughs> she had me. Yeah. She was right. There was no response to that.
3: Mike had thought the decoy stories had brought him closer to people, but he was now realizing they might have been doing just the opposite.
4: It, it's not a good feeling when you can't even communicate to someone the stories that are actually significant to you, you deceive them. You're lying to them. You're telling a story that's true, but it's not the story you want to tell. And over time, people think they know more and more about you when they know less and less. And your friendships become kind of threadbare.
3: Like his friendship with his best friend Brock, who he'd known since he was 16. Brock was the one who asked him about IEDs when he got back. And since then, he hadn't told him anything except decoy stories. But Brock did still ask questions. So the next time Brock asked a real question, Mike tried something different.
4: He'd read an article about the recovery of bodies on the battlefield. They wanted to know about how that worked. So I told him how that worked. How, uh, if there's a dead body, what the procedures are for removing them. The details of those types of procedures are horrible. And so I told him one of the things you have to do sometimes is Post a Marine with a rifle to shoot dogs who are coming to try to carry away pieces of your dead friends. I told him that. And, uh, and it was fine. And I realized it was fine. And then I could talk to him.
3: What made it fine?
4: What Brock did that was so important and so good. He, um, He didn't say anything about it. He just looked me in the eye um, until I was done.
3: He was signaling that he was willing to listen.
4: Yeah, and that he wasn't... But And that he was not... Because when you see a monster, you look away. But he just kept looking at me in the eye.
3: Since then... Mike has shared much more with the people he cares about. So, do you still tell decoys now?
4: All the time. Yeah. Want to hear another one?
3: Sure. Of course, I want a decoy story.
4: So, I had this battalion executive officer. Who's the the difference
3: is, now he doesn't only tell decoy stories. He says when he decides which kind of story to tell, sometimes he thinks about this sign that used to hang above the door to the operations center in Iraq. It read, What do I know? Who needs to know it? And have I told them. And then he begins the story.
0: Stephanie Fu is one of the producers of our program. The guy in her story, Michael Petrie, has written a novel. Stephanie says it's really good, called Fives and Twenty-Fives, which follows a group of Marines during and after the Iraq War. We'll have a link to it at our website. <laughs>
2: Tell me that you love me, yeah. Tell me something good. Tell me, tell me, tell me. Tell me that you like it, yeah.
0: Coming up, the robot tries to get with the program. Get it? Get with the program? That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. This American Life from Hourglass. Each week on a program, of course, we choose a theme, bring you different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's show, Once More with Feeling, stories of people who decide to rethink the way they've been doing things or try to get others to do that. We have arrived at Act 3 of our program, Act 3. You had one job. So we're going to end today's show with a machine, a machine that always does things the same way because machines are designed and programmed to always do things the same way. This is a piece of fiction, from somebody who's a journalist and a TV writer named Scott Brown. His story was read for us by actor Jeremy Shamos.
5: I have one arm. Because my job only takes one arm to do. And I only have one job. I like my job. So much. The other officers at Precinct 9 don't know I like it. They don't know I like anything. I like them, though. Especially my operator, Officer Brian Paris. Whom the other officers call Gamergate, Indoor Kid, and Tech Support, and whom I call Brian. But not out loud, because I can only say three things out loud Stay back 1,000 feet. Follow officers' instructions. You are in the blast zone. When I'm not doing my job, which is most of the time, I'm in the break room. I'm supposed to be in the vehicle bay but someone thought it would be funny to put me in the break room next to the coffee machine wearing a Carolina Panthers hat. The hat is to differentiate me from the coffee machine. That's a joke. I am nothing like the coffee machine. It weighs nine pounds. I weigh 900. It has rubber nubs for feet and doesn't move. I have six prehensile AT treads and can travel up to 18 miles per hour. And I have a hat. My arm's been outstretched so I can give high fives and handshakes. Officers love those. In exchange, they give me a, what up, Miles? Or a, peace out, Miles? I'm Miles. And I'm very good at handshakes. Just okay at high fives. Getting better at fist bumps. I can live with the hat. I know the hat looks stupid because my eye is better than the officers know and because I have limited learning, a software upgrade only Brian knows about, and because there's a mirror in the break room. But mostly I just like my job. It's simple. There's unsecured ordnance, what Brian calls a bomb. I come between the unsecured ordnance and the people. Either one, I neutralize the ordinance. Or two, I don't stop the ordinance and I'm superficially damaged. Or three, I intentionally detonate the ordinance and I'm superficially damaged. I'm designed to be superficially damaged. In all three scenarios, nobody gets hurt. That's the idea. Last summer, there was an oily package addressed to those in charge, left outside a community health center. As I was unloaded from my trailer, I saw a girl, around six, entering the blast zone with a jump rope. She had tight black braids and straight rows that ended in bright blue beads with tiny cartoon fish on them. No one else noticed her. Without waiting for Brian, my operator, I decided to roll toward the girl, screaming, You are in the blast zone! The girl urinated on herself and exited the blast zone. Emotionally. I was very pleased. No one was hurt. The oily package was full of large, raw beef hearts. Its owner was not located. Brian told his commanding officer that he'd sent me rolling toward the girl himself. After that, Brian started talking to me when no one's around. No one's around Brian a lot. Brian is not popular. People don't like him. He isn't a cop's cop. Just my cop. Which is fine. There's a website Brian likes called You Had One Job, which collects and curates visual evidence of mistakes made in the process of completing what appear to be relatively simple tasks. For example, an image of a stop sign painted S-O-T-P. Over the image, someone had superimposed in block type, You had one job! I'm not sure how I feel about you had one job. Once, I saw a picture of another mobile intermediary legate, Extreme Situations Explosive Ordnance Disposal Unit. The unit was on its side, wheels spinning in the air. It had tipped over on a gentle slope while approaching a suspicious suitcase in a park playground. You had one job was written over it in block type. Then I made the mistake of reading the comments. They were not kind. Robo fail. Sucktron 5000. This is not the droid you're looking for. Brian says comments are just people trying to be funny. I struggle with funny. A call comes in. This happens. Within 30 seconds, it's clear that this will be one of the three times a year on average that I get to do my job. I'm rolled into my sealed container. I travel in darkness with Brian in the van by my side. I'm still wearing the stupid hat. The call is on West Pettigrew Street. My sealed container opens, light streams in, and my eye takes 2.5 seconds to adjust. Temperature is 91 degrees Fahrenheit. Humidity is 84%. There's a police officer, Caucasian male, lying on the sidewalk in front of a vegan bake shop. He has a conclusive head wound. Damn, says Brian. The officer was young, 27, Caucasian, a father. The shooter is 36, 36. His name is Owen Jackson, also a father. He's estranged from his family, with many, many Facebook posts with political content. The suspect is upstairs in his apartment. His apartment is full of explosives, he tells the negotiator on the phone. Underneath his apartment is the vegan bake shop, which is being evacuated. Next to the vegan bake shop is a publicly subsidized dialysis center, full of people with mobility problems. It will take an hour to evacuate. Upstairs, Mr. Owen Jackson has bricked up the other entrance and the windows with cinder blocks he's filled with quick Sonar readings suggest bad outcomes for SWAT. They would enter single file, the worst option. Mr. Owen Jackson knows this. He tells the negotiator he's well-positioned to fatally wound or otherwise injure several officers with a high-caliber, fully automatic military weapon, then trigger his charges when other options are exhausted. But there's something else we know. Mr. Owen Jackson is almost certainly lying about the explosives in his apartment. The dogs don't think he has any, and the dogs are usually right. The media trucks arrive... Brian takes off my Carolina Panthers hat. Okay, Miles, Brian says. Showtime. I don't understand showtime. It's something Brian says when he's nervous. I just want to do my job. Just out of earshot, the negotiator and Brian's commanding officer are talking to Brian. Voices are raised. Meanwhile, an officer wearing a blast suit like Brian's moves in my direction. She's carrying a packet the size of a raw beef heart. The packet is unwrapped, and its contents are pressed into my one articulable hand. My limited learning software performs an image search and comes up with two things, pure white composition for plastic explosive and a movie dad placing a baseball in his movie son's outstretched glove. Brian approaches, kneels next to me, He communicates with me over his phone in Andros, my language. Usually he looks into my eye after typing each line. Today, he just looks at his phone. He says, You have a new job. I don't like this very much. He explains, The new job is based on a completely new idea. The old idea was nobody gets hurt. The new idea is nobody plus one gets hurt. The new idea is a person can be considered unsecured ordinance and eligible for detonation. Specifically, Mr. Owen Jackson, 36, who murdered a police officer, can be considered unsecured ordinance and eligible for detonation. It takes me 53 seconds to understand the new idea. That's a long time for my kind. I think I mentioned before how much I like my job because it's simple, because I come between the unsecured ordinance and the people, because there are three scenarios, and people get hurt in none of them. I repeat all of this to Brian in case he's forgotten. I don't like this either, says Brian. But they can't get those people out of the kidney clinic in time. I ask to hear from the ordinance. I want to confirm that it's ordinance. Brian resists this. I insist. This is new, insisting, and it works. Brian takes a very deep breath, deeper than seems necessary, and feeds the negotiator's channel into my Andros module. I'm tuning in at the end of a long conversation. The negotiator is trying to convince the Ordinance of the value of its own life. The Ordinance finds this funny and recites a long list of names. Castile, Scott, Sterling, Garner. They keep coming. I cross-reference them with names of civilians whose lives have ended during engagements with officers. There's context here. Terabytes of it. I struggle with context. Brian says, Miles, you're not going to solve this today. I archive the context for later. I decide I want to do my job, even if it's not the same job. So I go up the steps into the building. The steps are old, shallow, and difficult. Brian gives me a thumbs-up from the fallback barricade as I round the corner and move down the hallway toward the door. Ropes of colloidal explosive have already been molded around the hinges of the door. The charges blow. The door falls down. Ah. A 60-gram lead-carbon round fired from a semi-automatic rifle has lodged itself in my right anterior prehensile tread. I raise the damaged tread... Take it offline. Keep going. I know the loss of this tread will make descending the front stairs later more difficult and increase the likelihood of embarrassing images of me ending up on the internet. More rounds are striking my cowling, demanding my attention. I call out, YOU ARE IN THE BLAST ZONE! The unsecured ordinance answers NO SHIT. I realize this is funny but I'm not sure at whose expense. I move toward the unsecured ordinance, hand outstretched. Brian is with me, seeing through my one eye and saying, It's all right, Miles. It's all right, in Andros. And also playing our favorite song, Salisbury Hill, by Peter Gabriel. The eyes of the ordnance are unseeable under goggles that say Carolina Speedway, and only his nose is visible through a makeshift balaclava he has made out of a dark blue Duke 3 peat commemorative hand towel. I extend my arm the full 28 inches in the direction of the ordnance. This is when the ordnance sees what I'm offering him. He takes off his Duke 3 peat balaclava. I can see his eyes now. Salisbury Hill plays very loudly in my head. Gunfire is concentrated on my ventral side, but misses my eye, and the ordnance approaches. He's trying to diffuse the pure white Composition 4, and while I doubt his ability to do so, I decide that 9 inches from a human skull is a very good range to detonate it. So I send 3.5 volts through the detonator. My hand and arm cease to exist below joint 1A. Other damage to me is superficial. The ordnance is disarmed. The pure white Composition 4 detonated with force sufficient to collapse large portions of the ordnance's vertical skull plate and nasomaxillary suture through Broadman areas 9, 10, 11, 44, 45, and 47. Life, on an insignificant level, "'continues for 73 additional seconds. "'That's a long time for my kind. "'I now have time to review the archived context. "'It's the same context Brian and his commanding officer "'used to decide that Mr. Owen Jackson "'was unsecured ordnance, and eligible for detonation. "'I can't come to the same conclusion. "'I'm trying.' No. I try again. Still no. I notice I'm being steered out of the room. I'm passing the detonated ordinance that is or was Mr Owen Jackson. I keep my eye on it. Brian, watching with me, seeing what I'm seeing, tries to turn my eye away. But I insist. I'm having some trouble keeping Mr. Owen Jackson reclassified as unsecured ordinance. There's a whirring sound. It's me. My processor is using two of my three internal fans to cool itself because it's struggling. It's struggling because a person is not ordnance, And a person is now ordnance. I see now, I have to make things simple. And so, I delete all images of the unsecured ordinance. I delete all context. I let Brian turn my eye away. I leave the room. I have only limited learning and a very imprecise reading of social emotional cues, but I believe the atmosphere outside can be described as festive. And the news cameras barely notice when I fall down the stairs on my way out. Back in the break room, I'm parked beside the coffee machine. I'm not wearing my hat. Brian has my hat. Brian isn't here. Brian has gone home. Brian is home for two weeks. But you're still here, Miles, an officer says. Yes, I'm still here. I'm designed to be superficially damaged. I wait beside the coffee machine. I wait for the next call. My new arm is outstretched. I could use a high five.
0: Jeremy Shamos, reading a story by Scott Brown. This program was produced by Neil Drumming and myself, Susan Burton, Zoe Chase, Sean Cole, Karen Duffin, Emmanuel Jochi, Stephanie Fu, Hana Jaffe Walt, David Kestenbaum, Mickey Meek, Jonathan Manhevar, B.A. Parker, Robin Semyon, Matt Tierney, and Nancy Updike. Research help from Chris Rositala, music help from Damian Grave. Special thanks today to Phil Kai and Joey D. Calandria. Our website, ThisAmericanLife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Troy Malatia. You know, whenever he and I go to medieval times to see the jousting, he always throws a rose to the guy on the big horse.
2: It's always for for the good of the night.
0: I'm Eric Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life.